So please let yourself come back in and get settled at ease. And before we start, um, I was reminded that Sean Fargo, who is the staff member here at Spirit Rock, who takes care of Monday night and has for some years now, is totally wonderful. And those of you who volunteer here or, or and work with him or come regularly know him. Anyway, today's his birthday. And we were going to have a little cupcake and sing happy birthday, but it didn't appear. So instead, I would like to recommend those of you who know him or want to get to know him to give him hugs and kisses on the way out. And um, he'll be the recipient of that. Hi, Sean. There you are. Happy birthday. Yeah. Good. Excellent. So please let yourself be settled and find a way to be comfortable as you listen, not so much to remember what's said, as I like to say, no quizzes, no grades, um, but a reminder at best uh, to listen and sense if there's something that's touched or something that you know to be true that's reawakened or becomes visible in your heart so that that too can be something that you use to guide your life. And tonight I want to talk about um, a couple of themes, trauma and freedom, um, and uh, give a little context for why this particular topic. some years ago, actually it was in the 1970s, I went to live in Thailand in Buddhist monasteries starting in the 1960s and 70s. Um, there was a big uh, student-led protest movement against what was the military dictatorship of that time. Um, and it got very heated Um, And one of the main streets in Bangkok was cordoned off and the students were behind one barricade and protesters and the other side was the military and the police. Um, And it went on for a long time and there was a number of people killed. Um, So it it turned violent and it was spiraling and getting worse. And everybody, as happens in these things, was trying to get more and more people involved and taking sides. Um, And as it was getting worse, and the society in some way was getting more polarized, not knowing how to solve it. One morning, the abbot of a forest monastery outside of Bangkok asked all his monks and nuns um, to walk with him, as we would do as monks and nuns in the morning with our alms bowl, barefoot, into Bangkok. And they started really early in the morning because it was a long walk. They started at like 2 or 3 in the morning and walked for hours. And they got to Bangkok after the sun rose, um, and they walked all the way across the royal royal Pramane grounds up to this great avenue where the conflict was happening and getting worse. And they walked between the barricades of the police, the military, and the students, and just stood there silently all morning. Just stood there. And of course, the monastics are revered in Thailand, but even if you weren't reverent toward them as a Buddhist or something like that, just to see their presence standing there with stillness and peace and goodwill and compassion, it cooled the whole thing down. And the next day they started negotiations between the student leaders and the government leaders, and and instead of following the trajectory of more violence, it began to follow the trajectory of listening to one another and solving for peace. So I was in New York last week um, to do some teaching um, and also to lead a peace walk around Central Park, um, New York Peace Walk. Uh, And it was a beautiful thing, you know, hundreds of people and led by rabbis and sheikhs and imams. And it was partly for peace in the Middle East and respect for Muslims and respect for Jews. Muslims being the enemy du jour right now, was the communists or the immigrants or whatever, you know what we do. Anyway, um, um, but more than that, it was to show that in New York, there are two and a half million Muslims and Jews, and they all ride the subways, and it's fine. 
you know, and the whole notion that there has to be this kind of conflict um, is belied by the reality of collaboration and interdependence that works very well in New York. It's kind of a symbol for the world. So we had this very beautiful walk and we had media come out and all, you know, really um, wonderful group of leaders. And we were supposed to have had a parallel walk because these peace walks have been taking place in Palestine and Israel for 10 or 12 years. And one of my co-leaders was the person who'd been doing that. Supposed to have a parallel walk in Bethlehem. You know, that little village in... Palestine that was the birthplace of the Prince of Peace and so forth. Anyway, um, may it be so. Um, and, um, but the few days before the walk, it was, um, was canceled because a number of very angry young Palestinian men um, posted on Facebook and on different sites the pictures and names of the organizers of the Peace Walk saying, this Peace Walk, which will have Palestinians, but also will have Israeli peace peace workers and so forth come over. We don't want any Israelis in our territory. It, it, it's, being, it's being complicit with the enemy. It's normalizing relations with those who are, who are subjugating our people. And, you know, these people are making danger for our, you know, community and so forth. So it was actually pretty dangerous for the folks who were organizing it because these are pretty radical young men. Um, and the response from Sami Awad and... <coughs> People, the Holy Land Trust, and the Gandhian Center in Jerusalem, in um, in Palestine, and in Bethlehem, and so forth. You know, instead of hiding or being worried because they were in danger, they said, "Oh, great! These are the very people we want to talk to. You know, let's make a place and a date, and, and we're here. We want to. You want to tell us these things? We want to listen to you. And oh, by the way, bring your mothers. You know, we want to get a real meeting going on there. But anyway." But part of the problem is this, is that we get traumatized individually or collectively and then we enact a kind of cycle of trauma. And a friend of mine, um, Gina Ross, who's an expert in trauma healing both individually and collectively, has been going over to Palestine and Israel to train people in how to release the trauma that's held in their bodies some very skillful kinds of work. And the first group that she worked with, she's worked with military and politicians and educators and so forth, but the first group she worked with was, the, was journalists. She said because the journalists rush to the scenes of conflict, that's what makes good news, right? Nobody's writing about the peace groups, but if somebody gets shot or bombed or whatever, that makes the news. And when they do, they get they get traumatized. If you see a suicide bombing or you see people shooting at children or you see all the terrible things that are happening all sides, um, it registers in you. And then if you don't have a way to release it, the next time you write an article or the next difficult thing that happens, you not only describe it, but you have all that unfinished pain from the previous one and the previous one. And so the, the news cycle itself becomes complicit, if you will, in the cycle of violence rather than in making peace. Does this make sense to you? So it got me really thinking about trauma because you get, you know, vets coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and there they are sitting in the cafe and a motorcycle backfires outside and they hit the floor, you know, as if that's an incoming round or somebody's, you know, starting to shoot at them because it's all still held in their bodies. And the littlest thing triggers all that stuff that's held back in there. So, um, I was in New York doing the Peace Walk and also a beautiful benefit for 15 years of New York Insight. And then, then just yesterday in Los Angeles, a, a benefit also for, for Inside LA, their 10th year. And all this flowering of the teachings of mindfulness um, And mindfulness is getting very widespread as teachings. Um, Kind of like, you know, well, it's it's, um, like yoga was a while ago. Because, I mean, when I was a kid in the 50s, if you mentioned yoga, it was like some weird Indian half-naked guy with their legs twisted around their neck and some, you know, very weird anthropological thing that you sort of knew about and didn't want to know any more than that, right? And now there's 
a yoga studio and a Starbucks on every block, basically. <laughs> and if I sit on the plane and people say, what do you do? I say, well, I teach mindfulness meditation. It used to be. They would like, huh, or move away, right? Now they're more likely to say, oh, God, my wife could use that, or my, <laughs> or my husband, or, you know, or something. But yeah, 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 there's some appreciation, and so there's mindfulness in medicine, and mindfulness incorporated in education, and in business, and arts, and sports. I know the mindfulness coach for the L.A. Lakers, you know, and the Chicago Bulls, and so, so it's all there. Um, and I've read this before, but it, it touches me in some way. There's this conference of mindfulness in the law at Berkeley, judges and lawyers and law professors and people from around. And one of the judges who had a long meditation practice was appointed to sit on the bench as a judge. And he said, hmm, sit on the bench. I know how to sit. I've been sitting for years. Oh, okay, I'll do it that way. And so this is a sample of instructions to the jury. I want you to listen to what will be presented in this courtroom with total attention. You may find it helpful to sit in a posture that embodies dignity and presence and stay in touch with the feeling of your breath moving in and out as you listen to the evidence. Be aware of the tendency of mind to jump to conclusions before all the evidence has been presented and the final arguments made. And as best as you can, try to suspend judgment and simply witness with your full being what's presented moment by moment. If you find your attention wandering, you can always bring it back to your breath or to what you're hearing again. And when and only when the presentation of evidence is complete, then it will be your turn to deliberate together as a jury and come to a decision, but not before. And so it's just so great to hear, all right, this is, you know, a, a, a beautiful application of mindfulness. So there it is, mindfulness, all these different ways that it's being incorporated, and it's great, and it makes me very happy. Or we come and sit and use it to quiet ourselves and release stress. But there's something deeper than just doing it for self-improvement. Or, you know, I mean, you go to the gym, and then you go to therapy, and now you meditate, and it's kind of like, okay, fix your personality. Good luck, right? (laughs) There's a deeper truth to that offering of mindfulness or mindful awareness. And that is that it allows us to stop and open our attention to the present moment, to the mystery of the present, and to the mystery of human incarnation, which you happen to have been born in somehow or other, you know, with its what Oscar Wilde called the tainted glory of humanity the magnificence of it, and the stupidity of it. In case you hadn't noticed, you could turn on the TV and it will remind you. Or look in your diary, whatever. Anyway. And so along with these benefits uh, and the teachings in New York and the Peace Walk and, and so forth, I also did some teaching with a colleague and friend, Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist in New York, trained Harvard Medical School and written a number of wonderful books on Eastern Western psychology, a good friend. And we had 600 healers, mostly, and therapists um, that we taught for a weekend um, these trainings of mindfulness and compassion and modern neuroscience, how to work with it. And Mark told a beautiful story that comes from the Buddhist um, texts. It's the account of a woman named Patachara. And Patachara had... Um, terrible tragedy befall her family where her children and her husband were killed um, and the family that she thought she was related to wouldn't help her and she was just in enormous grief and someone said well there's this great teacher over here named the Buddha you should maybe go see him perhaps he could help you and she went to see the Buddha as the story was told anyway um, completely distraught and weeping and, and undone, um, and sat at his feet. Um, and he asked his attendant, Ananda, to take his own cloak, his own robe, and put it around her shoulders so that he could talk to her, because she seemed so undone and so uncentered. And so the, the cloak of the Buddha was placed around Patachara's shoulders, 
And then he sat with her, breathed with her for a time, and then talked about the impermanence of incarnation and life itself, of how everything and every being that's born has a certain life span and then disappears, um, and that it's true for all of us, and that this is the nature of life, that we get this gift of being alive, but that it's not forever. And to live wisely is to open our eyes and heart to love well while we have it, but to know that it's not possessable, that it's not ours. And he went on and gave her various teachings and calmed her heart and soothed her mind. And eventually she became not only a nun, but the most famous and recognized of all the women who were meditation masters and teachers at the time of the Buddha. She became a really remarkable sage. Um, But then Mark stopped and he said, what we do as healers and what we do as therapists in some way is to place the cloak of mindfulness and compassion around the people who come to see us. They come with their sorrows or anxiety or depression or fears or you know, anger or all the conflict they carry or whatever it is. And w- when they sit down, we take the, the Buddha's cloak of mindfulness and compassion and say, here you can sit with this and we'll be with you. And you can tell the story and you can hold this with compassion and mindfulness. And then we wrap it up for them to take home so that they can sit in the morning themselves and take the Buddha's cloak out and wrap themselves in the spirit of compassion and mindfulness so that it's something that they own rather than that comes from us. And I thought it was a really beautiful image of meditation. Um, And it talks about the healing that's often necessary as a precursor to or woven in to the practice of liberation itself. Um, And so many, many people who come to classes here or do retreats that I've taught over the last number of decades come for a kind of healing. Sometimes it's physical healing of illness, but sometimes it's anxiety or loss or grief that they carry or fear or big changes in their life, struggles. And I remember my teacher, Ajahn Chah, when we brought him to America in the 70s, and he wandered around one of our retreat centers. Everyone was doing this beautiful, slow walking meditation. And he said, it kind of looks like a hospital, doesn't it? You know, and then he would toddle up to people, wander up to them and, and, and look at them and smile and say, I hope you get well soon. You know, it's really sort of both teasing and then very sweet at the same time. But a big part of what certain people experience in their meditation when they come is the necessary healing of trauma that we carry as human beings. And at least in my clinical training as a psychologist 30 more years ago, there really wasn't a lot of good, intelligent skill building around how to work with trauma. Even though it seems like, duh, obvious in some way, it wasn't there so much. But now there's a lot more. Um, And part of the work of dealing with trauma is to know that you can take, like Patachara, you can take the robe of presence and mindfulness, we'll call it loving awareness or loving attention and compassion and put it around the trauma and the sorrow that people carry. Because as human beings, we are all vulnerable. Raise your hand if you're not. Look out there, you can have your eight dollars back. It seems, says the Buddha, that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. That's a little troubling, isn't it? And yet, there's something in it that rings to the place of knowing in us that rings obvious and deeply true. So what trauma is about, in a certain way, is the fact that we are vulnerable. I mean, we're like clams. We can open up and things can come in. We can close up, too. But you can't live life as a clam closed up all the time. You have to eat and let water circulate. And as a human being, you have to let yourself be vulnerable. In some way or other, you are. And then there comes the death of someone you love, or grief, or loss, 
of that kind or suicide or um, the end of a marriage or there comes illness or an accident or surgery or there comes violence in your life. Um, Sometimes recent, sometimes historical. Sometimes you carry trauma that's pre-verbal, that's really early in your life. Things that happen to you or the absence of things that happen. Sometimes it's the trauma of abuse. Sometimes it's the collective trauma where you experience the trauma of racism or of homophobia or being denigrated or excluded in some way or another because of some aspect of your life and the craziness of the culture or people around you. And trauma is also layered, which is to say that many of the vets who are coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq have um, multiple layers of trauma. I was at part of an event working with Michael Mead, my colleague, and others who do these retreats for returning vets, um, and where the vets were telling stories and reading poems. And the women who were the veterans in this event not only talked about the trauma of the war in Afghanistan or wherever they deployed, or they also talked about the trauma of being raped there, usually by soldiers from our side. And then, if they were really willing to look, they also had to talk about the abuse in their families that they experienced, which in many cases made them um, go into the military. And so there were all these layers. It wasn't just for the women, it was for the men as well. Um, And then we carry the trauma of the world as well. We see the images on TV or read about them and the injustice and the, the, the things that happen to women and children and men in the various circumstances or the environment, those too can become traumatic for us in different ways. So when you come and you sit to quiet the mind and open the heart, part of what you will encounter at certain periods anyway is the need for attending to the trauma that you carry. And that attention follows what is called the foundations of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of thoughts, and mindfulness of the dharma, of the relations, of the context and situation. And the biggest question is basically how do you touch the measure of suffering and the traumas that have been granted to you? Because we will all have them. And can you place the the cloak that was placed around Patachara of compassion and mindfulness, can you meet the trauma with tenderness and courage? Because that's the way it's healed. So let's go a little further, kind of reflecting together. How do we approach trauma? With Patachara's robe, the Buddha's robe, we bring a dignity or nobility, a compassion, an attention. And we first, for the different layers of it, we may often first encounter the trauma that we carry that's unprocessed in the body. Um, And the body holds it, you know, because we have in the neurological basis for how we relate to difficulty, we have the fight, flight, or freeze response that's very early in the brainstem. It's there, you know, here's danger. Either we run away or we fight. We try to, it's a survival mechanism that's built in. But what happens for us as human beings, for animals, they fight, flight, or freeze, and then they get on with their life. But for us as human beings, that gets activated in us, and then when it's done, we don't necessarily know how to release it from our body or tell the story or do what's necessary, and it gets held in there. And then when the motorcycle backfires there, what's held in our body, because we spent, you know, three tours of duty in Afghanistan and there were a lot of incomings, is still wired in the nervous system. And the minute we hear that sound, um, it, all come, it all explodes in our, in our mind and our body again. Um, so the body, 
um, gets triggered by circumstances and it holds underneath this unfinished fight, flight, or freeze where we were in trauma and we didn't quite know what to do with it and it doesn't get completed. So, um, I had, for example, a woman who came on a retreat and she tried to sit and meditate. She came to a 10-day or whatever the retreat was here, silent, and she was going to learn to meditate. And she came in to see me after a day or two and said, I can't sit. I said, you can't sit? I became curious. Why not? She said, every time I sit, I just feel like I can't bear it. And I get up and I have to walk anything. But I sit and I get kind of panicky. And so instead of thinking there was something that she was doing wrong, I became interested. Oh, something's cooking. All right. Do you know what it is? Not sure. Okay, well, why don't you try and sit here? Let's do it together. Put the cloak around us. Be very kind and close your eyes and we'll sit together and see if you can experience uh, more consciously what's happening. So we sat and she sat for a minute or two and then her eyes got wide and she said, ropes. And I said, oh. And then the story poured out about how 10 years before she had been abducted by this guy that she sort of knew and the whole kidnapping and this whole thing. And it was still pretty unprocessed, very raw in her. You know, she'd sort of gotten over it in some way, but not really. And every time she sat still, it was as if she was tied up again. That's why she couldn't sit, because her body remembered that. So I said, don't sit. You know, walk. Can you walk? Yes. All right. So she walked, and she walked morning, noon, and night for days and days, and gradually she walked herself back into her body because she could tolerate being present in her walking. And then she could sit for a few minutes and a few minutes longer. So when you read the classic Buddhist teachings, they say that prior to developing awareness of what's present, of mindfulness, it is helpful to stabilize the mind and body through sila and samadhi. Sila means basically virtue or morality. It's hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing, basically. So it says, you kind of clean up your act a little bit so that when you sit, you reflect before you sit, you realize, all right, I haven't deliberately done terrible things in these last period of time. I've chosen to be compassionate toward myself and others. And that becomes a stability, a protection for you. Okay, now I can sit and face myself. And then the second sila is samadhi. And samadhi means a collectedness or stability, um, which is to say that, especially if you're going to be dealing with healing and trauma, if you don't have some steadiness, you get washed away by the trauma and get re-triggered or re-traumatized. You sit there like that woman with the ropes and you try and sit, and what happens is all the fight, flight, or freeze comes back again and you just experience the suffering of it. And there's some sort of, I I call them Stone Age approaches to um, uh, trauma work, like prolonged exposure, where you have to repeat it over and over and over again until it extinguishes it, quote, unquote. But it's really a pretty um, brutal way to work with trauma. A much wiser way is to find stability first. And you can find it in your body by doing the breath as we did until you quiet down a bit or you find it by feeling it in your posture where your feet touch the floor and the buttocks on the cushion and sense connection with the earth, or you look and see where in your body you feel the greatest sense of safety and stability and presence, and let that begin to be a refuge. Or if you can't find it in your body, then you might be invited by the teacher or the person working for you to say, well, reflect back in your life on a time you felt really safe, even a moment, or a circumstance where you feel held and nurtured. And Oh, when I was up at the lake that my parents used to take me to, there was this tree I would crawl you know, out on this branch and look over the lake, and I just felt so held and loved. Or <clears throat> when I was with this person, you know, with my grandmother or grandfather or something, and some image will come, and you'll know what it feels like to be safe, which we all have. Almost all. There's a, unfortunately a few people that don't quite have that, and that's another story. But you find that stability, and then from that, 
little by little, you approach the trauma in the body by telling a little of the story or letting a little of the image up and experiencing it with the cloak of mindfulness and compassion. And then, okay, that's enough. Then you go back to your breath or to sitting on the earth or the image of well-being of your grandfather. And you do it a little at a time and gradually you unwind what's held in the body. Does this make sense to you? So these are skills we need as human beings. Second foundation of mindfulness is feelings. Along with the body stuff, there are emotions. And again, my teacher Ajahn Chah says, if you haven't really wept, you probably have not really started to meditate. (laughs) And some are the tears of grief that you carry, and some are called the tears of the way, because the heart softens and you feel the injustices of the world, or you feel your kinship with the women or children or men or or, you know, people in circumstances all around, or the animals that you relate to, and you go, here we are, we have to carry this life with its, you know, marvelous and almost unbearable beauty and its ocean of tears. And what you learn, and modern neuroscience shows this, is that you gradually expand your window of tolerance, they call it. And I know, because in my family... Emotions were generally not allowed except for the outbursts of paranoia and rage from my father who was a really angry and abusive person and a wife batterer and all kinds of things. Um, He was also, he had a lot of other interesting good qualities, but he was a, um, he was kind of mentally ill along with being brilliant and he took it out on the people around him. So when he was in the hospital... Um, at 65, he was um, thought he was dying of congestive heart failure, and then he got a. At the very end, he got a mitral valve replacement, but they weren't sure they could do it. He was so out of it, and his kidneys were failing, and this and that. And I went to see him in the ICU. It was back in the days when you couldn't stay very long, like 15 minutes in the ICU. And there he was with all the tubes in and so forth. Um, and I thought I wouldn't see him again. And even though he'd been a very difficult father in a lot of ways. I also loved him. You know, he was my dad, and there were things that I appreciated about him as well. Anyway, I thought, well, I may never see him again. And so, sitting next to him, I had to go after my 10 or 15 minutes, and I looked at him and I said, Dad, I just want to let you know I love you. His eyes got a little bit wide. He raised the arm with all the tubes in it up to his nose where he had this breathing thing, and held his nose like it was a bad smell, and shook his head and made this expression like, we don't say shit like that in our family. (laughs) Strong guy, you know, he had his own, you know, he got to hand it to him. But that was the level of emotional intelligence in my upbringing. (laughs) So that when I began to meditate, I was going to be Mr. Peaceful because my father was Mr. Violence, right? And I was shocked to discover that I had actually suppressed a lot of my own anger. And a lot of it came up at him and myself and everybody. I was surprised. Oh, I thought I was going to be peaceful, you know. Or the grief that I carried, or the fear that I had, um, or the longing, the complexity of our life, or the desires. You know, like Alison Luderman writes in her poem, she said, it's kind of desire is so wild, you know, because we're in the desire realm, right? You have to live in some way, by feeding yourself and meeting others and doing things and so forth. She said, and then you go on a diet, you know, and you hide the chocolate chip cookies. But the problem is that you're the only person in the world who knows where those chocolate chip cookies (laughs) are hidden, right? And that's kind of like our dilemma with desire. You know, you can't get rid of it because it's part of being human. So you have to find a wise relationship to desire or anger. The point isn't to get rid of emotion, but to understand it. And so with trauma, what I find in working with people is that that cloak that of Patachara, of the Buddha, of mindfulness and compassion begins to give people the capacity to first recognize what they feel, because a lot of times people don't even know what they're feeling. I'm upset. Well, what is it? And then later they realize, I, you know, I'm, it's so much pain or so much hurt or so... Enraged, although anger is often a part of grief, or so frightened, or whatever. Sometimes people don't even know what they're feeling, as I didn't in my family. And then when you do know what you're feeling, well, it terrifies me. You know, what will I do with this? Nothing. 
You don't have to do anything with it yet. You have to bear it first. You have to open the window of tolerance so that it's possible to actually be a, a fully feeling human being. And then you begin to have a choice of which desires to follow or whether to act on that fear or anger or, or just to say, oh, this is the pain that I carry, but I don't have to you know, repeat that in some way. So the release of trauma requires a learning of the vocabulary of your own emotions and the capacity to be present for them. And that comes through mindfulness and it comes through compassion. So body holds trauma, emotions carry trauma in all these different ways. Um, Then there's the mind. (laughs) Right, oh my gosh, you know. It's like that cartoon in the New Yorker I talk about that shows the car crossing the vast Utah desert and um, the roadside billboard reads your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? (laughs) And it doesn't stop. And it tells all these stories. There was a woman who came on a retreat who'd been... She had worked in refugee camps in the Middle East, uh, NGO, right, for a number of years. And she particularly was carrying the stories of families that had lived through lots of trauma, you know, and trying to patch their lives together when they'd been through, in some cases, pretty much unspeakable things. And when she sat to be quiet, all that was in there. And she really had never been able to tell the story, and she was trying to in our, you know, 20, 30-minute times together. But I could feel it was like she was pregnant with all this stuff. I said, why don't you write it for me? Just write down what you need to say that you haven't said, and I'll read it, and then we'll talk further. She came in three days later and said, here, and handed me 80 handwritten pages. She'd been up all night for two or three nights, just because it just poured out of her. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I hope I can read this handwriting, right? And there it was. And it turned out that it was the story of the trauma of all these families and the different camps and places she'd worked. But interwoven in it was two love stories. She'd fallen in love twice with a woman in one camp and a man in the other. And so actually I'm up at night like turning the pages and it's going to But for trauma, sometimes we need to tell the story. And then when the story is told, it loses its hold on us. Because when we're identified and still carrying it, it's like this happened. Mind creates both samsara and nirvana, says this great Tibetan lama, Kensi Rinpoche. Yet there's nothing much to it. It's mostly just thoughts. Once you recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive you. So we have these stories, and they need to be told sometimes, and yet in the end, the stories, when they're told, then begin to lose their power. And you realize with trauma work that it's possible to release and tell the story, um, and that there's a kind of freedom that comes. This is a poem from Ellen Bass. Wonder, she's a wonderful poet, the book Mules of Love, called Phone Therapy. I guess she'd had some part of a life as a social worker or something before she was a poet. Anyway, I was a relief once for a doctor on vacation and got a call from a man on a windowsill. This was New York, a dozen stories up. He was going to kill himself, he said. I said everything I could think of. And when nothing worked, when the guy was still determined to slide out that window and smash his delicate skull on the indifferent sidewalk, Do you think, I asked, you could just postpone it until Monday when Dr. Lewis gets back? (laughs) The cord that connected us, strung under the wildly busy streets, the pizza parlors, taxis and limos, women in sneakers carrying their high heels, drunks lying asleep, that endless coiled wire waited for the waves of sound. In the silence, I could feel the air slip in and out of his lungs in the moment when the motion reversed like a goldfish making the turn at the glass end of the tank. I matched my breath to his, slid into the water, and swam with him. 
Okay, he agreed. It's a brilliant poem. It really is, because there we are. We're in it. We're in it. And, and then she asks this, tries everything. Nothing works. She's this kind of innocent question. Do you think you could just postpone it until Monday, until Dr. Lewis gets back? Okay. And it shows you that we can be in the mind and its craziness, and yet, and yet, there is a moment when we can step out. And that's the release that trauma asks. And I have a long story that I won't tell all tonight, but in being part of these retreats with vets and so forth, um, at times, and gang kids, people who've been in the wars, undeclared wars in the streets, um, people will stand up when we talk in our circles and say, I can't tell you what I saw. You know, the horrors, the things that you you can't tell people when you come back because they don't know how to hold it. So you have to carry it like something that burns in your soul. And then they go on and they say, I can't tell you what I did. And that's the place where the real trauma lies, where there is shame and guilt and confusion and grief. You know, and these kids are 17, 18, 19 years old and sent over, um, you know, to fight sometimes multiple deployments um, with very little understanding of the culture where they're going or even why exactly. And it's incredibly confusing. The rules of engagement are such now that you don't know who your enemy is because anybody could blow you up with a, you know, bomb wired under their clothes and... It's just terrifying for the most part. I can't tell you what I saw, and I can't tell you what I did. And these retreats for vets, um, especially combat vets, make a safe place with ritual and mythology and, and um, the stories of warriors coming back from other cultures, from Africa and Tibet and Mayan warriors and, and so forth. And you begin to hear the necessity of healing that warriors have gone through for ages. Um, it makes a, a, a safe enough environment that the stories that have etched themselves into the souls of these people can be given voice to and listen, and then they can be welcomed back because they're not here until they can tell that story. Does this make sense to you? And so sometimes in the healing of trauma, it comes out of the body. Sometimes it's the tolerance for the, the life of emotions that we are. We're this living stream of emotions. Sometimes it's the capacity to be present for story. And there's a relational healing then. The trauma doesn't just get healed by yourself. At the end of these retreats, Michael Mead does um, and part of them is called a welcoming home ritual the vets will get up and their family and the community is invited and they will tell a part of their story or read a poem or something they've written and then for each one there is um, at the end of that a ritual to say we welcome you back your story is told and you know now we welcome you back to this community with all our hearts and people need that Uh, desperately, and we all need it in some way. I'm working with one of the um, directors at Facebook on a site for returning vets that's going to have good trauma work, body healing work from Peter Levine, some of the best somatic experience work, Liz Stanley's work where she's doing mindfulness training for um, uh, almost all of the Marine Corps now helping them to regulate themselves emotionally in different ways. And, you know, a uh, um, whole variety of things that are really helpful for people. Um, but it turns out the trauma is not the end of the story. I mean, if we could use mindfulness and compassion, and we can, when we can use it for the healing of the trauma that we carry Sometimes you can do it in meditation, but as you can hear, half the time you need to do it with somebody else because you get overwhelmed. You need to sit with someone who understands and can hold, carry that cloak of, cloak of compassion and, and wakefulness when the emotions or the story that needs to be told or the release in the body comes so that you can regulate yourself. You kind of borrow that 
But trauma is not the end of the story. Um, the instructions from the Buddha, where he says, live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and confusion and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. And the way is, of course, the way of compassion and presence and mindfulness. So this is an instruction. And what it says is, even though there is suffering, and the Buddha certainly teaches about this, it need not limit you. When Nelson Mandela walks out of 27 years in Robben Island prison, or Aung San Suu Kyi comes as she was recently in San Francisco and Washington, New York, to get the Congressional Medal and the, you know, pick up her Nobel Prize and so forth, after 17 years of house arrest, with such love and dignity and graciousness, Nelson and Aung San Suu Kyi, they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. Gary Snyder, who's this amazing environmentalist and poet, Pulitzer Prize winner, and you know now turned 84, um, recently interviewed by one of our teachers, Wes Nisker, saying, Gary, you know, you were one of the founders of the modern environmental movement, and over these years you've done all this stuff, and now you look and see global warming and climate disruption and, and speciation, the loss of species. You know, what advice do you have to people? at this point in time. And the first thing he said was, don't feel guilty. Amazing and beautiful. Don't feel guilty. That's not the way to save the world. That's just a kind of unfortunate, contracted state. He said, if you want to save this world, love it. Do it because you love the otters and the streams and the trees and the worms and the sunlight. Do it out of your love because that's the only thing that will really save anything. And so this is the instruction from the Buddha to say, yes, there is trauma. Yes, there is suffering. But don't be so loyal to your suffering as to take that to be who you are. It's like when I like to tell the story of when Ramdas was asked about, you know, how, how did he come to be this... Hindu teacher with his beads and robes and, you know, chanting Ram Ram and things like that when he was brought up Jewish. You know, come on. Um, what about your Jewish tradition? And I too was brought up Jewish. Weren't you bar mitzvah? He was, I was, and so forth. You know, and, and he's replied, he said, there's a lot of really deep and beautiful things in the Jewish tradition. It wasn't there in my upbringing, but now I know about it. The, Kabbalah and the Jewish mystical tradition of the Hasids and all these beautiful practices. He said, so I very deeply respect it. He said, but, but remember, he said, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> and it's a very witty remark, but there's also a profound truth in it because who you are is not limited by your parents or your personal history or the particular you know, race or orientation or whatever, that's something that has to be honored in you. But who were you? What is that spirit that was born into this incarnation before you got issued this particular body? Who are you really underneath all of that? And in India, when you meet someone, you, you know, the greeting, you put your hands together and say, Namaste, instead of shaking hands, it's this. Shaking hands is like I don't have a weapon, you can see. Um, in Namaste, it's, I honor the divine in you. I see that spark of the divine. I see who you really are beneath you know, your clothes and that body that you've taken for this particular incarnation dance. I see who you really are. And then you get bowed back to And it's a very wonderful greeting. So who are we really? Yes, the Buddhist tradition acknowledges suffering. The first of the Four Noble Truths, there will be physical pain. Anybody not have it? There will be loss, aging, grief, tears, sickness. There will be all kinds of unsatisfactoriness, even when things are at the maximum best beautiful, you know, and not only that, the chocolate is good, while they're fantastic. 
But then there's that little niggling thing saying, how long is this going to last? Because things are impermanent, right? That's part of the unsatisfactoriness is that conditions are always changing. And this is human incarnation. You want to hold on, but you can't. Not only is there inevitable pain and suffering, there are causes. It gets worse because of greed, doesn't it? It gets worse because of hatred and racism and ignorance. It gets worse because of clinging and attachment. Because things are always changing, and if you hold on to things that are always changing, you get what's called rope burn, right, basically. (laughs) It hurts because I don't want it to change, but it's changing anyway. I'm getting old. I don't want to grow old. Sorry about that. You know, I feel for you, but it's part of, you got, you took the ticket for human incarnation. You get the whole e-ticket ride, you know. So there is a certain measure of sorrow in human incarnation as well as its magnificence and its beauty, and this is the way that it is. If you react out of greed and clinging and hatred and so forth, you make tremendous suffering. If you don't, if you live with wisdom and compassion, then there's an end to suffering. When Suzuki Roshi, Zen master, put it this way, he said, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, you find yourself in nirvana. And so it's not like in the Himalayas. It's any moment that this is the way things are. This week's Newsweek, caught it in the airport traveling around, it says, in case you didn't know, an article by a Harvard Medical School physician, Eben Alexander, heaven is real. Okay? <laughs> and it's a beautiful article, actually. He's a neuroscientist and so forth, and then he had some intense meningitis, and his whole brain shut down. And there he was, hooked up to everything, and all his colleagues were watching him. And it was, he was definitely close to death for a number of days. No you know, activity that was measurable other than just barely the brainstem keeping him alive. So you'd say, okay, the dude is out for the count, right? Meanwhile, he's going into the realm of light, getting instructions about life is perfect and there are all these, you know, what we're here to do is to learn love, that things are timeless, that incarnation is just something that you take on as a kind of a costume for a while to learn your lessons or whatever. And he's saying, hey, you know, I, I thought I was limited by my brain and all my colleagues are watching that, but it's not true. Thank you, doctor. You know, he could have also come on a retreat. It would have been cheaper <laughs> medically. And it happens all the time. People have their out-of-body experiences. They have their visions and so forth. It's not that complicated. You are not simply a kind of uh, epiphenomena of nervous firing in your you know, neural pathways. Consciousness is actually the source of life. And who you are is consciousness. And then you get to rent the body and enjoy it. So from that perspective, and we all know this at certain moments, you are free. As, as free as Nelson Mandela was, as free as Aung San Suu Kyi was, no matter that she was in house arrest, she still said, I will not go away and I will love you anyway, no matter what you do. So yes, you do your healing. And you have to do it and you have to understand because we're vulnerable, how to deal with trauma and release it and get help and so forth. But it doesn't limit you. You are free. And it's like the woman in the middle of a terrible divorce who came to see me and her husband was an intense lawyer who had you know, decided to not only take all the money but get child, get all, you know, get child custody and all the kind of nasty things that can happen in a bad divorce and was using the children as a way to kind of undermine her and stuff like that. And it was very, very, very painful. And at one point, she came in and she said, "Um, yes, this is agonizing. It's so painful. I know I'll survive. I have a livelihood. I'll work. She said, and I will not bequeath a legacy of bitterness to my children. I will not talk about their father badly. I will not live with bitterness in my heart. I will just move through my life with as much graciousness and compassion as I can. You, too, are free. 
and this is the gift of the teachings of the Buddha point to of your humanity that no one can take from you. And it doesn't mean that there's no loss, that there won't be the death of loved ones or that there won't be divorce, you know, and that sometimes you carry the flame of someone that you loved who died in your heart for the rest of your life in some way. You carry their spirit and you carry your tears. It doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. You think it's supposed to be easy. I read this story a few weeks ago, and I like it. I'm going to read it again. Where are we? The violinist Yitzhak Perlman, (coughs) um, when he was four years old, contracted polio. As I did, and I was put in the hospital and paralyzed, but I got better which was amazing in 1953, I think. But anyway, he didn't, and he still, you know, walks with uh, crutches, and um, so he still kind of got the limitations of what of that paralysis of polio. But he came became one of the handful of most extraordinary violinists in the world. Anyway, he was doing a performance in New York at. Lincoln Center or Carnegie Hall, one of those places. And he was the centerpiece and there was the orchestra and he was playing some great violin concerto, Beethoven or whatever it was. And partway through the concerto, there was this loud pop. One of the strings broke and you could hear it across the hall, the whole concert hall. People wondered, okay, is somebody going to come out and bring him another? He's got his Stradivarius. What can you replace that with? Or take it and stop the orchestra and restring it? Or will he hobble across the stage and get it? He sat still for a moment, closed his eyes, paused, and then he simply signaled for the conductor to begin again. And then he re-entered the concerto, playing with passion and verve and power and love, um, changing, reconfiguring the piece so that he could play it on three strings. And when he finished, apparently there was just silence and then a standing ovation for what he'd done. And when the ovation was over, he wiped the sweat off his brow and looked out and he said, quite simply, you know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. And it so represents our human condition. You know, we have the limitations of our life. He had his polio, and you have your brokenness and your loss and your longing and your love. You have all of that, as he does. And it's not supposed to be easy. When Katagiri Roshi, the Zen master, was dying of cancer, his children were still, I think, 10 and 12, and... His students gathered around and were tending him and caring for him, and the cancer got worse. And one day he called them and he said, you know, you're all just peering and staring at me. You want to see how the Zen master's going to die. Right? <laughs> and he said, I'll show you. And he lay back on the bed, and he kicked his hands in his feet like this, and he said, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. That's how I'm going to die. How's that? You know. He had kids. He didn't want to leave his kids. I mean, it was true. He said, there's not some way you're supposed to die. You die the way you die. And Zen is to be with things the way they are. Sometimes it's your trauma, and sometimes it's your tears, or the story of grief that you carried for so long that needs to be told, or the things in your body that need to be released. Um, And the point is, and sometimes it's your judgment of yourself and your self-hatred, because you think you're supposed to be over it. Sometimes I go about pitying myself. You all know this saying from the Ojibwe. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. There is a luminosity and a perfection, Newsweek tells you, right? Um, There is a joy and an ease that is possible, and I see it in the faces of people who finish a week retreat. You know, we call it the Vipassana facelift. Everybody's <laughs> shining and smiling and their hearts are open. 
in neuroscience, in eight weeks, they measure additional resiliency and emotional regulation and greater steadiness of attention and more access to compassion and the ability to approach conflict better and physical healings, you know, immune, improved immune function and things like that. Those are all possible. They're all the effects of paying attention and, and really of training ourselves to be present. This great gift that you can be awake, that you can be present. Yes, there's the healing, but beyond that, yes, there's the freedom. O nobly born, you with a tender and magnificent heart, be courageous. You know, live with the dignity of a Buddha, of the goddess of infinite compassion of Kuan Yin. It's never too late to do it. It's fabulous. You can start right now. Um, You can awaken to the mystery of this life. You can be more present. You can offer your love and the best of yourself and this free heart no matter what the circumstances are. Um, This is your birthright. O nobly born, begin the Buddhist texts. You who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, you know, you're given the robe, the cloak of the Buddha to place around your own shoulders to take home, to to use in times of difficulty. Um, This is yours. And when we meditate or practice... It's not to become, you know, again, some grim duty or some kind of self-improvement project. Um, It's really to return to this fundamental freedom and dignity and beauty that is your spirit. So let's sit for a minute. And just uh, another minute before we go. Remember, those of you who know him or would like to get to know him, to give Sean a (laughs) hug or a kiss. Um, We have had a series of, a class series on trauma work with one of our fine teachers, Sharda Rogel, um, and uh, Shakti Rose, who was trained in a work called Somatic Experience, uh, Peter Levine's trauma healing work that's really excellent if anyone is looking for trauma healing. Um, And that's available. Um, Again, I'm hoping we can get 50 people from this class before the end of the year who are inspired to say, I'll do a dollar a day. I'm kind of tired of sitting in the trailers and it'd be nice to sit (laughs) in a magnificent place and not only that, make it for everyone else. So please, please think about that. And Serena will be in the back again if you want to talk to her. Give her your You can even tell her I might be interested. She'd be happy to hear that. Um, So do. And then let's end with a one-minute chant. So in India, when you meet someone, the greeting, you put your hands together, namaste, I honor the divine in you. And the root of the word namaste in Sanskrit is the word namo, which means to honor or bow to. And so I'd like us to chant namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what you want to bow to. You know, bow to the potential of compassion and goodness in yourself. Bow to people that you love. Bow to the two and a half million veterans who are coming back that they might find the healing they need or to the millions of people in those countries where they've been that need that. Bow to whatever is calling your heart's respect or attention. And then we'll go out into the autumn Eve. Na mo.
spirit of awakening and the free heart in the days and the week ahead. Thank you for your kind attention and your generous support. And remember to drive politely out there. It's crowded and dark. It's the place to begin your practice. <laughs>